0: What's up, energy fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Hey everyone, and welcome back. I'm here in Zoomland for round two with my man Arjun Murthy. For those who don't know Arjun, he's the author and the publisher of the famous Super Spiked. It's a uh, great substack for those looking for solid factual based information and updates on the ongoing energy transition era. Arjun holds over 30 years of experience as an equity research analyst with global experience covering oil and gas EMP, midstreaming refining, clean and a- new energy technologies, geopolitics, you name it, he's done it arjun welcome back to the show um the last time we talked it was an nfl football season and you told us basically that you're a diehard dallas cowboys fan which caught me by surprise but now it's opening day for the mlba so naturally i have to ask are you a texas rangers fan yankees fan or mets and for everyone out there listening arjun's not going to respond to that question and the reason for that is because uh there's a little bit of a technical hiccup, uh, and so it, uh, I clipped out, uh, or it accidentally clipped out about a minute of the conversation, but Argent is a New York Yankees fan. He loves it, and we were talking about the rule changes within the MLBA, and so with that said, uh, it kicked, it, the, the way it left off was me asking a question um, regarding the rule changes, but you didn't miss much, just a little bit of banter back and forth, but anyways, here it goes. Again. I show it recording with that button flashing. Okay, good. All right. Well, then we'll we'll keep going because it's it's showing recording on mine too. Just wanted to make sure. I'd hate for this great conversation to to come to an end with nothing except for. Recording. I'm always
1: happy to talk to you, Justin, whether we're recording or not. So uh, <laughs> thanks,
0: man. I appreciate that. So uh, so with that, so okay. So with that said, so here in houston it's if you go to a game it's downtown i live out in the burbs which a lot of people do but it literally if i go to a game that starts at three i feel like i don't get home till like midnight so for me selfishly like I'm, I'm not a purist i grew up playing baseball but i'm all about entertainment value right which hopefully drives revenue which you make the game even better blah 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 um i think the changes are cool the one thing i'm curious about and then we'll keep going but the the bases how they're larger do you i mean are you in agreement with that that, that that's the one that seems kind of weird. I don't I,
1: I think the limiting two pickoff throws, uh, I don't know that the game was being held up by too many pickup throws. It's kind of like the automatic walk. like for all the time baseball games took throwing four intentional balls, I don't think was like some huge travesty of time and this bigger base path. But if the point is to incentivize stolen bases, who am I to say that that's not an interesting development? So I think, yeah, you know we'll 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 see about that. I, I do want to make one comment though for, Everyone who lives in the rest of the country, you all are very lucky because it's very easier to get in and out of your stadiums. Like I went to a Rockets game. The Uber dropped me off like in front of the stadium and it picked me up in front of the stadium. (laughs) Try going to a Yankees game. It will take, if you drive, it is just torture going through the Major Deegan during rush hour. It just takes so long. Parking takes long. Exiting the stadium is going to take you an hour and a half. There is nothing easy about going to New York sporting events. So I have gotten to the point where I actually prefer watching these things at home or with baseball, listening to it on the radio. And I think for the rest of the country, you're very lucky they can <laughs> kind of get in and out of these stadiums much easier. So
0: Yeah, well, we're not quite as, uh, you know, landlocked as as you guys up there down here in, in Houston or in Texas in general. But that's interesting you say that. and And I'm going to have to just like shut up the next time i complain about going to an astros game and it taking me over an hour to get home because that probably for most is like a typical day in the it takes us an hour
1: to get out of the parking lot seriously at yankee stadium an hour oh, to get out of the man. parking lot if that's
0: if it takes an hour to get home we then still have like an hour and a half to go after you get out of the parking lot so geez, i you know what i never even thought of that. that's funny um the giant so,
1: stadium is no better whatever the heck it's called metlife stadium another torturous really? parking lot driving experience very very difficult to get to so
0: so the fans unless you're unless you're in a certain level which you know some people are i'm sure they get they get there with ease of logistics by way of private no 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 no, no, no. that's totally
1: egalitarian you could be the richest person on earth you could be the poorest person the legit you might have better seats if you're wealthier uh (laughs) you may be able to sit in the box if you're wealthier there is nothing easy about the logistics whether you're rich or poor it is completely equal it is equal misery for everybody
0: we're, I mean, we're all about equality here, right? So let's, I mean, that's <laughs> good. You're, you're building... It's pure
1: socialism
0: at its best. Let's make everyone <laughs> equally miserable. And we do that getting in and out of sporting events in the New York area. Hey, you know, I i, I tend to pay for convenience, but in that case, it doesn't sound like you could. So uh, that that's actually quite funny. Well, uh, again, I'm excited for, for baseball season here and we'll have to see how it all shakes out. Um, for those who may only listen to the first few minutes of the podcast, you're wondering what the hell, but... I do need to get this out of the way. Please do yourself a huge favor. Connect with Arjun on LinkedIn, Twitter, and then make sure you go subscribe to Super Spiked. All the links will be in the show notes to make it super easy. Um, So again, Arjun, talking about Super Spiked, uh, you recently published the PTSD Pullback Part 2, Goodbye Europe, uh, Hello Rest of the World, which was a fantastic read. But the part that really interested me more so than anything was the final section called the Unretirement Blog Episode 2. So naturally, I have to ask, what was your score at seven canyons can you please disclose that <laughs> i shot i want to say a 93 which is uh if you're you know
1: if you're gonna say or or state that you're at eight handicap 93 is pretty pretty awful <laughs> but it was okay. rental clubs and the course was under construction so i'm gonna and it's my first round you know here in the northeast which is where i live you you generally don't play december through march so that was my first round of the year it is hey. a beautiful course to do a bunch of bunker work and i think uh, I would definitely recommend Sedona, by the way, maybe more of your audience has been there. I loved it. It
0: was a great experience at the enchantment resort and playing that golf course. It, it sounds like it. And I don't know if you'd maybe mentioned it on a podcast or maybe it was just through reading, but it sounds amazing. And it as so I, I, I like to golf. I, I, I'm having a hard time breaking 90, even though I play more than, you know, I, I play enough to where I should be in like the low 80s. But again, it's just I don't know. It's tough. But I say all that to say it, it captured captured my attention there. And I thought that was pretty cool. Are, are you again, we'll move on after this. But are you like typically now that you're on retirement, uh, if you will, are you going to try and play quite a bit? I mean, what's your goal here? So one of the things, in, so I, I rejoined, or I should say,
1: I unretired and joined Veritan, which is a Houston-based Energy. I think they describe it as a research strategy and investing type firm. It's a some former colleagues. Uh, Maynard Holt is kind of the founder. He's formerly of Tudor Pickering Holt, as people will recognize that name. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a group of folks who I most of whom I've known for a long time. But part of the motivation kind of came out of SuperSpike to sort of quote unretire, which was I started SuperSpike despite having these board and advisory roles, basically out of, over my sort of dismay how everyone talks about energy transition, but. My experience with writing Super Spike made me kind of recognize I do miss kind of a more regular engagement. My kids are going to college, so I'm a different point in my life and career. I think this cycle is going to be here for a little bit, and I think the Veriton team will be a great team to to be, you know, join their ride for this cycle. But as far as, like, not wanting to get into bad habits, so when I was at Goldman, 24-7, 365 Um, You know, my wife did everything for our children at the time I was sort of show up for the occasional baseball game and the random dinner but it was you know full on and you know, it was a choice I made, Um, we have some benefits from it we you know we, we have a, you know we're able to go on vacations and I was able to stop working as intensely but I don't want to get back into those bad habits of sort of just being 24 seven 365 you've talked about this on recent podcasts about sort of mental health and poor mental health so i'm trying to like not get into previous bad habits of being sort of all 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 in and forgetting about the rest of the world so i set a goal Okay. During retirement I was playing 100 to 120 rounds a year my handicap went from 27 to 8 all good stuff. Wow. Um I'm going to make the goal that between April and November you can play two rounds of golf a year in the northeast and so that adds up to at least 60 rounds. So I'm going to set a goal to, and I played zero golf when I was a Goldman so I've got a personal goal 60 rounds of golf will be a sign of having good mental health, a sign of balance. Uh, I'm going to try not to have Goldman Sachs tone of voice at home, which is something that also kind of creeps up when you get busy. So no Goldman Sachs tone of voice and 60 rounds of golf is going to be my mental health balancer uh, in this unretirement state that I'm now in.
0: Wow. Well, no. you know, again, I think it's all about setting and it sounds realistic, right? Like it's not yeah. this unachievable goal, but what I hundred think-
1: is not realistic because Veriton is paying me to, then it's not a volunteer job, right? So they are right. paying me and I'm part of a small team. And so I should be carrying my weight there. Of course. I think the question is what does carrying your weight mean? Uh, and how do you have, uh, and it is a family friendly type of place. And so how do you, how do you retain maybe at least some sense of balance, which I think was not possible earlier in my career Uh, In an in the Goldman Sachs kind of environment.
0: Well, that's actually an interesting topic. I just want to stick on real quick, and it's something that was I read a long time ago. Is you can't pour from an empty cup, right? And I think as we get older, and again, you know, I'm speaking from someone in their late 30s, but you know, I've noticed like maintaining the level of energy and being with someone with young kids. It's like how do you balance everything? Because I still feel like I have enough energy where I could work 24/7 for weeks straight and and keep going. Mainly because I love what I do, which I think you do as well but maintaining the balance a lot of it for you know our family our mental health um but like do you, what's and again for someone who i'm sure you grinded your, your your tail off for years and years and years and now you're you know again li- looking at sort of the next uh chapters of, of your life but w- what's your thoughts on like does this work-life balance or you don't even have we don't even have to define it like that but talking about mental health like do you think it's worth Cause a lot of times until you kind of go deep in, in a dark corner, you don't realize sort of the downside while you may appreciate the upside, but it's like, I don't know if it was really worth it. Like, do you think it's worth for folks in their, in their younger years to just like work themselves to death, but then come out of it on the other end with someone like yourself with great experience, you know, good network, good reputation to where then you can kind of create these goals in your, in the sort of the timeframe of your life now. I mean, what's your thoughts around that?
1: It's it's a great question and it's going to clearly vary for the individual and I think you started with a couple points that I really agree with which is do you love what you do and so like my number one objective for my kids who are now sort of college age is will they find their passion and what they love to do and if you love to do it it's honestly not really work and I was fortunate to work in an industry where if you loved it and if you did well you had a chance to earn an above average income and I that should not be the metric. I think there are, I think loving what you do is far more important than what you make. And I used to be envious of people who, uh, for example, I have a friend who's an electrician uh, and that for him was more of an eight to five kind of five days a week kind of job. But when it ended, he got to go out and hang out, drink beers, maybe be with his family as he started having kids. And um, I would have loved to have done that. Will he Uh, have as much in his bank account as someone who's a retired Goldman partner? Probably not, but he's going to have a heck of a lot of happiness. He's going to have some great memories along the years. And so there's always pros and cons to to what you do. I used to hate when I was running the research department, being forced to give these work-life balance speeches. And we tried to emphasize it. And I always thought it was fake. And I said, if you're going to be successful at a place like Goldman's, the work-life balance is, it's all work. And at some point, hopefully you can leave and then you can have your life balance. And that that's actually the path I took. And that's not for everybody. Right. So for people who that was not for, uh, I had no problem saying you might be better off in a different industry because you look miserable here. And as a result of being miserable, your performance isn't as good as it could be, or it's not the right work environment for you. You don't want to work 24-7, 365. That is what it took to be, I think, a, a leading Wall Street analyst. That was, That was, I have no regrets about that. But I'm also glad that my wife said at some point, you don't look happy anymore. You actually do look like you're not enjoying yourself. And that's that deep, dark place you're talking about where, okay, I've got a prominent job. We have an above average income. I could definitely continue doing this and execute it on generating an above average income. And I give my wife a lot of credit for saying, well, you're not happy. And then I give myself credit for saying, it's not good enough to simply make a bunch of money. That's not going to do you any good if you end up you know, God forbid, not seeing your family or some worse family outcome. I mean, I don't think we'd ever gotten divorced, but we're a heck of a lot happier as a result of the fact that I stopped working at Goldman Sachs for sure. So I don't mean to be too personal about it, but I made the all work and then all life choice. And now going forward, I'm trying to, okay, I don't want to have all the bad habits of the all work, Mm -hmm. but I do want to work and kind of my kids are, you know, in college now and we're at a different point. And that was my path. But I think everyone's path is different and it's, it's, To to be truly successful in some of these industries, you are going to have to work a lot. And I think people sometimes try and pretend they can have all these infinite choices, and you may not be able to, and you have to decide whether you're happy with that or not. You know, what are the choices you want to make? And we live in a world where people talk about this stuff more. That's much better than, you know, I'm I'm in my mid-50s, much better than, you know, earlier in my life where no one talked about any of this stuff. Thank goodness people talk about this stuff. Uh, but yeah. it's, you know, there's no answer to this. It's going to depend so, on the person.
0: So, no, I, again, you bring up a, a ton of good points. And and I think one thing that I've learned over time, and, and again, I have a lot of learning to do is in this sort of supplements, what you're saying is I think a lot of people are very hard on themselves and they judge themselves in the micro. It's like, Oh, for the last six months, I haven't like seen my kids. But I think to your point is like, if you look at it in the macro and, and you, and you understand like over the years, have I have I maintained somewhat of a decent balance? Because I know for myself, like there may be some weekends where I'm all in parenting and, and doing stuff with it, but then there might be, I'm gone on a business trip. And so like when I get home on Sunday night from a business trip and I have to go to work money, like I feel kind of guilty. It's like, oh, like I was away from my kids, this and that. But then if I look over time, like, oh, okay. Like this last year was actually, there was a, like a lot of good memories, spent holidays with my kids, you know, like it's 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 easier when you kind of look back and give yourself a bit of a, like a macro perspective instead of looking at yourself on the day-to-day i think it's important but to your point no one reaches the upper echelons by having you know going to bed on time every night hanging out with their kids going on all the holidays like you're gonna have to do things that the average person won't want to do so depending on what your goal is and i think lastly was like what does happiness look to look like to some people right which i think it's that may be kind of woo-woo for, for some but I, again i think these conversations are healthy especially in an industry where it's like 24 7 365 and i say that by way of being in oil and gas it's like you could literally work yourself to death which i think anyone could do in any industry but um i'm only speaking from my experience but it's uh it's like what's happiness look like and, and if you've got a good support system at home that can kind of keep you in the you know on track uh so to speak then, you know, you could be in a position like yourself where you got three lifetimes ahead of you to, to create experiences and be there and be present and all that. So, again, I, I think it's an important conversation and, it, and it's one that, uh, you know, there's a time and a place. And, and that's why I like to have folks on like yourself. They're at least willing to kind of chat about it. So, um, but great perspective, Arjun. I think it's I think it's amazing.
1: Just what, So one point we just said about being present. I think that's one thing I did poorly when I was working at Goldman. So it's, it's one thing to say, okay, you're gonna dedicate yourself to your career and you've made that choice and everyone's okay with it. My wife's okay being at home and taking care of the kids and we're all aligned with this. But the question is when I am home for dinner, or when we are out with friends, are you there and participating? Or are you just thinking about the report you should be writing to the cl- and, and sort of like, Oh, I, you know, and and not being present. So the first weekend I stopped working at Goldman, I was at my son's baseball games, little league baseball game. And one of the dads came up, he's like, Arjun, where's your workstation? And he wasn't, I thought he was joking. He was being serious. He's like, I was like, What are you talking about? I like I had no idea what he's talking about. He's like, Well, you usually have your laptop and a stack of papers and you seem to be doing stuff. And I did I did not it did not even register, by the way, that going to my son's baseball game meant looking up when either he was pitching or at bat otherwise working when any other child (laughs) besides my own was doing something. And that's not really being there to be honest. So don't go to the baseball game. That's one choice. Just work at home. Or if you're going to go to the baseball game, don't bring your stupid workstation. Right. And they're, they're probably better examples. That's it that's a story that did happen, but that's sort yeah. of, are you there or are you not there? That could be, it can be a hard thing. But whatever you're doing, try and be there uh, for, for that thing that you're doing.
0: That's, and, and, that yeah. that's something
1: I could have done better uh, early in my career. So,
0: but, but you know, it, it, it's, again, it's so much easier said than done, right? Cause when you have a deadline that you feel like at that point in time, it is like the highest priority. And you know, that if you don't look up at, you know, if, if you're not there for, you know, being present at the game, watching every pitch every play cheering being engaged chances are like the quality of your life and the time is not going to change but if you don't meet the deadline or give your put yourself in the competitive position to to perform at the highest level then there there could be some ramifications for that or you just won't be able to sleep that night because you're like well if i would have just put out a few more hours during the baseball game i would have been able to have three hours of sleep not none or whatever um, so it's it's harder than it than it sounds, but again, it's it's good. The goal
1: is imperfection, though, Justin. Right. So we can right. all be very hard on ourselves, and so the goal is maybe just to be conscious and recognize of what you are doing,
0: and then hopefully that can lead to to better outcomes. So that's that's it. And and the last point on this, and then we'll move into energy related stuff. But you talking about being present, I it it absolutely kills me. And again, I don't judge anybody. Right. I've done silly things in my life. I'm not perfect, but. I always laugh when I go, if we go out for dinner, we do something and I look at a table and every person in the family is on their phones and they're eating together, but they're not engaged. Bad sign, bad sign. It's a terrible sign. It's, you know, and again, if there's listeners out there and and that's sort of the way that you do things again to each their own, but it's, it just, it's that part of it. I, I don't, that I'm not, I am very like optimistic about like humans and technology. And I think the world's going to become better and just continue to thrive. But that piece of it, like, I have a hard time seeing that. And so anyway, I just had to- I got to tell you, it's one thing when the teenagers are on their phones, which I do not advocate, but I, I a little bit get it.
1: When you just have a couple, not a family, just a couple out for dinner. I'm in my fifties. I see some older couples out for dinner who did not grow up in some cell phone era, right? And they're not on TikTok or anything. And they are on the phone, not to just like answer a message or check in on the kids. They're on their phone the entire time. I'm like, um, again, I'm not here to judge people. I just think um, I'm very fortunate, I guess, that I don't have that situation. That to me seems challenging.
0: So yes, no, I I, I would agree on that point. So, I mean, we're gonna pivot here a little bit. Um, so again, Super Spiked, it's been it's been really interesting. Uh, I, I've read most of them. I follow it. A lot of it's hard to digest, but I'm trying to learn. Um, but the most recent piece I found quite interesting, I was wondering if you could elaborate on a couple of themes. The first being the importance of companies having strong balance sheets and how that ties into evaluating future capital and insurance options. And then the second being how we're having less capital availability for traditional energy, i.e. oil and gas and and, and related, um, which could mean higher return on capital employed over the next decade? Because I think that kind of sets a good stage on on what we can, uh, I guess, look forward to coming down the pipeline.
1: Thank you, It's, it's it's a great question or a great topic to dive into. So like, why do we need a strong balance sheet? Which generally means not having a lot of debt, having more equity and more cash. And I think there's a couple of big reasons. One is the business is inherently volatile. It has always been a boom bust kind of industry. Ideally you make cash in the upturn, you kind of quote save up that money let's just call that that's having a good balance sheet and then when the ta- when you have a downturn Uh, you're in a better position that might be to make acquisitions or it might be if you're doing a major project to be able to continue that major project that's something uh, i think uh, chevron actually did a lot very well during the financial crisis of 2008 where they were getting criticized for having a very large cash balance they were just doing these lng projects like gorgon in australia and the cfo said listen i have no idea what prices are going to be and if we have a downturn i want to be able to ensure we can finish this project and she got a lot of grief for that And she turned out to be correct. So it's just one example of why you'd have a strong balance sheet. I think today we're in an environment where I am all for, you know, how can we improve our environmental footprint? How can we decarbonize or have a lower carbon footprint deal with scope one? But there's an ideology attached to climate. And that ideology is kind of one of the things I push back on in Super Spiked, And you're seeing it via financial companies, banks and insurance companies, especially in Europe saying, I am no longer going to finance new oil and gas fuels. And they do right. that because the IA had a report, IA net zero by 2050, that said, if we are to meet one and a half degrees, then you'd need to quadruple clean energy spending, And you would then in that scenario, under all these assumptions, have no new oil and gas fields. And people have kind of run with just the last part of that. Oh, to meet net zero, we need no new oil and gas fields, skipping the lack of realism and all the other assumptions or the fact that the other assumptions also assumed you would quadruple clean energy spending and you'd have all the kind of permitting reform and other criticals, minerals, battery supply chain buildups, which we're not anywhere near on track to have, uh, or even the hits to demand that I think they're forecasting, which are too optimistic. So there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of assumptions in that report that are not on track to come true for a variety of reasons. But a lot of banks and financial institutions, especially in Europe, have glommed on to that line that, oh, it would require no new oil and gas investing to meet, quote, net zero, one and a half degrees by 2050. And we we can sort of poke fun of it i can be sarcastic about it i can be substantive about it and show the analysis for why i think those assumptions are poor the reality is you're seeing more and more financial institutions say they're not going to finance new oil and gas fields we've seen munich re a german reinsurance company we've seen ing which i think is a dutch bank hsbc which has british and asian headquarters all say they're not going to do new oil and gas fields and others have had some elements of that so if you're an oil and gas company I don't think you can take for granted that the capital markets are going to be there and insurance markets are going to be there. And we can say, hey, let's just say you work for some company in Texas or Oklahoma. We don't deal with European banks. I would not underestimate the risk that some of this could spill over to our banks. We obviously have questions about the health of regional banks, post-Silicon Valley banks collapse a few weeks ago. So I think there's plenty of uncertainty. And I don't know how that's going to play out in our country. I would hope. We won't go down the dark road that I think Europe's going down. Mm-hmm. But I think as a company, you have to be prepared that maybe capital won't be as available as it used to be. And all of that is a reason to think differently about how you finance your company and to ensure that during the good times you have, you can get to as strong of a balance sheet as possible.
0: Right. So, I mean, so I, I have mean, a couple of questions on that, but the first one is on a, Just speaking on, say, like the large cap companies, or, or you know, the ones that are fairly large, um, what percent of them, or how do I want to add? Let's just call it like the U.S. based companies. Do you think a good majority of them have strong balance sheets? I guess depending on how you define that, or would you say there's a lot that need work? And the ones who do have strong balance sheets, they're in a good position to perhaps. Scoop up some of the ones that maybe don't have strong balance sheets. I mean, and M and yep. A is basically what I'm saying. Like, do you think there's gonna be a lot of M and A because of of this?
1: Collectively, balance sheets have, have improved a lot since uh, the low of 2020, the minus 37 dollar WTI and the <laughs> trough of COVID. We have paid the industry collectively. Just about all companies have almost every single quarter paid down debt, and that might be built up of cash, but net debt, which is debt yeah. on the balance sheet minus your cash, that has improved for now something like 10 or 12 straight quarters. And we're at the lowest levels that we've seen since probably the mid-2000s. So there's been a massive, massive balance sheet improvement. Uh, and part of that is we went from this deep trough to a dramatic upturn within two years. Uh, CapEx is always going to respond with a little bit of a lag but also Mm -hmm. investors are saying, I want more in dividends and I want a stronger balance sheet for all the reasons we've actually just talked about. So I think the balance sheet question has definitely improved a lot. Now, what, what does it mean to have a strong balance sheet? Is it just lower debt or lower debt than what used to be the case? And I am starting to wonder, are we at a point in time where zero net debt, uh, is going to be kind of where most companies are going to have to be. We're seeing that in the coal sector. Uh, and that is perhaps an analogy of where this sector is going to go. I'm not saying it should go there. I'm not saying it deserves to go there, but that doesn't mean it won't go there. And so do you want to be dependent on capital markets providers who may not want to do business for you or arbitrarily decide, hey, today I'm not going to invest in new oil and gas fields. Like I would not want to be in that position. If it turns out they are there, great. But why would I want to rely um, what may be uh, the, the the ideology that is creeping in. And again, when I say ideology, I'm in favor of clean environment, lower carbon emissions, but the kind of the nonsensical portion of it, which we, which we can somehow stop investing in oil and gas before we've addressed or there's been any change to the demand side. And so I think as a company, I would not want to be dependent on external markets or, or banks or what have you. And that to me means probably not definitively, but probably having zero net debt and maybe even having more cash than debt. And I wonder if that's where the better companies will end up going. Now, that seems hmm. too conservative to some. And I do think this plays out over a decade now. I don't think we're going to lose all capital markets access in the next two years. But hmm. again, tell that to a coal company. Uh, it's a, It can be a slow erosion where one day you wake up and everyone's outlawed you from their portfolios. And I'm talking about U.S. coal companies. And there's many reasons for that. It's probably beyond the scope of our discussion, but there are some lessons to
0: be learned there. And
1: why don't we at least think about them ahead of time rather
0: than after the fact? Right. So uh, I'm curious on your perspective. So, and you alluded to it. And if you look, every, like you said, everyone paid down a bunch of debt, started, you know, rewarding shareholders because um, we had a lot of making up to do during the shale revolution, you know. Uh, and and so I think we're in a we're in a good spot now. So so I, I say that to say. You know, with with free cash flow, and again, I'm no expert, but I'm trying to piece this together. You you, you have options to pay down debt, rein, you know reinvest, which I think a lot of people did in like the ESG stuff. And so, if you kind of go down the list of like, okay, if we if we're doing well financially, here's some things we can do. I think they we've mostly checked a lot of the boxes, which leads to then either whether it be M&A or increase activity, because you have to put that money to work, right? So where do you, you see? Do. So where do you see people putting money to work, say, as we move along uh, this year and into next year?
1: So this is the crux of the issue. I actually hit the nail on the head. And I actually get a lot of pushback from especially my former institutional investor, the largest money managers out there, saying, Arjun, you sometimes are now talking about where reinvestment makes sense or where M&A makes sense. Don't let these guys off the hook. You you have to stick with the mantra. I mean, they sound like the opposite of climate people. You have to stick with the mantra. Now for investors, (laughs) you have to stick with the mantra of saying only capital discipline matters, 100% or some large number of the free cash flow should only go back to dividends and stock buyback. And the issue with this industry, uh, as you know, is that ultimately oil and gas fields are finite. And if you don't invest, you have natural decline. And so for all the investors that say, hey, I want just variable dividends, That's fine. Um, And I understand the perspective and we definitely need better profitability than what we saw over the last decade. But there's no chance that zero investment is the right number or even just maintenance capex because you're going to have to figure out what is going to be the future low cost resource. I think oil and gas demand is going to hang in there much better than people expect. But even if I'm wrong about that. Uh, the inherent decline rate of oil and gas fields for every company is greater than even the most uh, diehard climate person would want to happen to oil and gas demand. So there's going to be some reinvestment needs that are needed. I think we're at that point. And so you still have to go to individual companies and say, is this company, is this management team set up to either make good acquisitions or extend the life of this play or invest in some new oil field? Should that all be shale like it was for the last 15 years? Do we have to start looking to Canada, uh, offshore, Gulf of Mexico, West Africa, conventional place in the Middle East or Asia? Like These are all the things I think companies should be thinking about. There's no comment that people should go into rapid growth mode and have poor profitability and a weak balance sheet. I'm not saying any of that. But I think the better companies are starting to get ahead of the curve on what are the areas that investments make sense. And I, I again, I really sincerely do get a lot of pushback from my former clients who say, don't let these guys off the hook. To me, that's not the right perspective. I think that's backwards looking. I think it's defeatist, I think it's defensive. And I think, again, we should want the better managements, which is not all the managements by definition, the better managements to be thinking about where they can reinvest proactively at a time where capital availability is tough, where private equity is not there, we're early in the cycle, CapEx is still low. Like if you're ever gonna invest, invest counter-cyclically early in the cycle, not pro-cyclically late in the cycle.
0: Yeah, no, that's such a good point. And so do do you think there are are many, I guess, known unknowns uh, that could help prop up traditional energy for years to come, which could ultimately result in a lot of or much opportunity for, for investors?
1: So, you know, the question is, when do kind of investors come back to the space? So right now, there's a fear on the part of forget about ESG, just regular investors who just care about making profits and are not ideologues on any of these things. They'll Mm -hmm. just say, hey, last decade, profits were poor. We kind of had a big Improvement last year, but I don't know if that's sustainable. It might have been more driven by Russia, Ukraine, or not. And now we've had prices come off. Uh, And at the same time, I don't want these guys reinvesting. And at the same time, I don't know if oil demand is going to fall off in a future year. Maybe it won't. Maybe, Arjun, you're right that oil demand is going to be flat to up for the next 10 or 15 years, not down a lot. But you know what? You may not be 100% right on that. There are some questions about how quickly we will transition, how quickly electric vehicles can ramp, all those kind of things. And so that inherent uncertainty is making investors say, I don't want to, I only want dividends. I don't want to invest. And again, I think that's where one's viewpoint does matter a bit uh, of where there must be more opportunities to invest when everyone says don't invest as a kind of a very contrarian type, type, type signal. I think to me, the question is part if we have five years of better profitability, will investors come back then? Or will they just say, well, you know what? It's five years closer to when oil demand is going to roll over. But I do know that as long as the world demands oil and gas, someone's going to have to provide it. It should be US and Canadian companies first and foremost, and hopefully Europeans as well, though maybe not. Uh, And and that there is going to be opportunity. I just don't know when investors kind of get, the stocks are up over the last two years, but they're not up as much as they, I think they ultimately will be. And so when do investors continue to come back? It's anyone's guess, but I think there's no, they, the um, as companies make profits, it's just going to be irresistible. So you just need to keep doing that.
0: Right. So again, Europe's interesting, right? Cause for obvious reasons, but I was talking to Rob Barnett. Um, he came in from London, he's with Bloomberg um, and he was saying a lot of the Europeans, uh, you know, energy oil and gas companies, whatever, um that you know for the last few years that made a really strong pivot increasing their capex and deploying a bunch into into you know renewable new energy are actually now kind of not necessarily like taking money away from that and allocating it towards traditional or, or fossil fuel type production but like actually re, you know focusing more and increasing their activity on the oil and gas front Due to uh, you know, for you know again, whether it be energy security, whether it be it actually makes money um to keep funding the new energy stuff, are you are you seeing that too? like, do you think the pendulum will swing a little bit, and while they'll still continue with their objectives and their goals, they'll realize like, okay, we can't just completely like turn our backs to oil and gas because it's like the engine that actually generates money to fund all this other stuff? Do you know I mean, I feel that, like,
1: yep. Oh, so, yeah. I think one of the big yeah, sorry. I think one of the big things over the last couple of years, especially post Russia-Ukraine, is some recognition that you cannot only care about a singular goal, which for many people has been we only care about reducing our GSG emissions. I mean, that, it's fine to care about that as a goal. I, I understand why people do, but that, that's never going to be our only goal. We know the second Russian gas was cut off from Germany. It didn't take five minutes for them to start burning coal again. And not just any coal, lignite coal, the worst coal possible, which just shows no one in any part of the world can live without energy 24, 7, 365. And of course, as we've talked about, unfortunately there are one to 3 billion people who are generally very energy poor. What are they going to do? But getting away from that to the question of European oil companies, the idea that you have to force traditional energy to transition or you won't have a transition has always been ridiculous thinking in my opinion how often is yesterday's companies tomorrow's technology leader we should want oil and gas companies to produce as much oil and gas hopefully profitably at lower cost as possible hopefully with a decreasing carbon intensity through carbon capture methane containment and so forth hopefully respecting biodiversity clean air clean waters to do it properly but we should want them to produce as much oil and gas as the world demands for as long as it demands we, we should want to be in the us and Canada the last barrels ever produced in the transition, even if that turns out to be 2150, not 2050. We have no idea how long that's gonna be. And I'll, I'll take yeah. the over in terms of number of years on 2050. And I think in Europe specifically, to answer your question, I do think there's a recognition by the leading companies, especially BP and Shell, that maybe they overwent the other way and the pendulum's gonna swing back. So Shell most notably has a new CEO. Yeah. Uh, he's a gentleman who's been with the company for a long time. He's of Lebanese descent. Uh, You know, Whenever people talk about diversity, it can often be a controversial subject. Here's an example of really good diversity. He's got a different background than all the previous CEOs. uh, And and, uh, I don't know him personally, but at least what I've seen, which is initially, within two weeks of being on the job, we get a leaked article that Shell at some point was considering moving to either Houston, which would be exciting, or Abu Dhabi to kind of get out of this kind of Ideologically insane mindset that inc- inc- occurs in in Europe. So I, I really shouldn't talk about what Shell, sh- you know, is going to do or not going to do. Other than, sure. um, I here's an example where a person with a different background and all that kind of stuff is clearly bringing some fresh perspectives to what has been historically one of the greatest companies on earth, which is the Royal Dutch Shell group of companies. And so whether they will be great going forward, that's gonna be up to the current management team, the CEO and all the employees at Shell, but they've got very, very awesome history since 1910. They maybe have had more challenges in the last 10 years. And I I am hopeful, I think we should all hope they get back on track. And that might mean remembering what their roots are, which are LNG, Mm -hmm. uh, which is needed, uh, which is oil and gas, uh, while they might consider some of the newer stuff as well
0: yeah no it's shell's an interesting company and, and when i saw that i, I thought i, I kind of thought it was uh like someone on twitter you know maybe making up some rumors about shell moving to houston i was like there's no way and then i kept reading into it. i was like holy smokes that's actually a somewhat of a plausible case here like and so again it's it's uh it's interesting to to see kind of the shifts I, the country, for all the
1: challenges we have as a country, it could always be worse. You could always <laughs> be
0: based in Europe. So, uh, you know, this is
1: <laughs> our country has challenges, but uh, be, be grateful. We are. Uh, I'm an American. So and I'm yeah. grateful
0: for it. So 100 um, percent. There was actually rumblings, too. And I'm curious on your perspective. Do you think at any point in time, uh, any of the and I kind of have my own thoughts, but any of the uh, the, the U.S. majors, i.e. Exxon, Chevron would end up buying any of the large European companies? I mean, I don't know for what, but there was a bit of a kind of some discussion around that. It's, yeah, you know, I want to say maybe three months ago or so-ish.
1: I mean, I think, you know, when energy is out of favor, uh, some of those big companies, so whenever we've had major consolidation amongst the biggest companies, the last time that it happened in mass was like the 1998 to 2000 period. And if you remember that era, Tech was in vogue. We had an Asian financial crisis that was was called in 1998. We had, I think, ten dollar oil at the trough, and that led to a wave of Exxon merging with Mobil and Chevron, Texaco, so on and so forth. That you know, that usually is an environment where politically and culturally and all these kind of things, you can do these mergers. Uh, Energy is still not totally in favor, but there's no doubt there's a geopolitical sensitivity that I think is much greater today than was the case, like say, three years ago. So. I don't know whether, from a political standpoint, uh, even from just a a will of these two companies' standpoints, whether we're going to see consolidation amongst the largest companies. There's no doubt we'll see consolidation throughout the rest of industry, and that could be a large company buying a small company, or two mid-sized companies, or what have you. But for those real big super majors, uh, without making like really a prediction, I would just say the environment where those typically have happened is when energy is totally out of favor; it's Mm. not on the front page of the newspaper. And it makes it possible for both politicians and companies to agree to things, and that's not quite the environment we're in right
0: now. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. So pivoting back to to Lower 48 um, and and shale specifically, you know, we mentioned, and it's kind of the the theme I'm I'm hearing and concluding is that like if we want to fund, or the way we're going to fund just you know production here is going to be by our own doing. You know what I mean? Like we would kind of say, there's the investment side public markets, everything. It's like, Hey, like we're on this, you know, we got to fight through this on our own. No one, you know, there's very little uh, investment outside coming in. So the ones that are, were traditionally investing in say us shale, what, what's the alternative right now? That's actually generating a good yield. I mean, are are they just on the sidelines waiting to just throw money at the next thing or what, like, do you know what they're doing with the money?
1: (laughs) I, I think you again, hit the nail on the head in terms of what is the number one question today. So, if shale is kind of getting to us, I'm going to call it inventory half-life. And that means it, it's it, a company will say they have a 15-year inventory of drilling locations. So that usually means that today's rate of activity assuming zero growth. But let's just say people don't want growth. When yeah. people say 15 years of inventory, some of that is tier two and tier three acreage, which doesn't mean it can't improve. And maybe it will, but at least today it's not tier one. So maybe tier one's uh, only nine or 10 years of that 15 years. So suddenly you've taken a third yeah. off your inventory life. Uh, yeah. Once you're in year four or five of drilling it, suddenly you're at the point where you're kind of on the backside of your, of your inventory uh, curve, if you will, where yeah. because it takes so much time to invest in new fields, historically, a development would have five to seven, if not longer years of lead time. That's not the nature of shale. But it is the nature of almost every other type of investment then you darn well better start preparing and investors start worrying once you're kind of past that inventory half-life and i suspect we're getting close to that on shale which does not mean it won't grow i think it is going to grow for the next several years but for some companies it's actually starting to mature which means within the next three five seven years which is a short period of time in this business they're going to be through their best inventory now hopefully they can improve tier two tier three and make a tier one that would be positive but I think we're going to get now from where shale was the only game in town and you didn't want to do anything else uh, other than hunker down and pay out dividends to where we're going to have to start considering other opportunities. Examples would be Canada's oil sands. Uh, I love that as an investment theme and as an alternative. It does require pipeline infrastructure that we may or may not get. Yeah. I think offshore will make a comeback. And I think that can be a range of different things in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, West Africa. We'll see about Brazil, there's some political challenges. And That's I think right. there's a range of conventional opportunities. So I think we're at the very early stages of companies. I think the better companies or the better investors will yeah. start thinking about what is going to be that next trend. And it may not be next year, but it's going to be over the next five years. We're going to need to diversify, you know, what, no, all of that may not be best suited for publicly traded equities. People never like lumpy capex or production or free cash flow, or they may you know be uncertain about geopolitical risks. I think and I've started writing about this, more of this may be better done under private company models, which I'm not saying private uh, equity back necessarily, but yeah. by private companies who don't have that public pressure of smooth production profile and, we want 100% dividends today. Uh, I, I'm starting to wonder what is the best way to set up these companies, and how do you take advantage of what I think are going to be opportunities in the rest of the world?
0: No, that's a fascinating point, and and I know again I, I'm I'm tied to to rig count day in and day out, and I and I think the, a good majority, or well, I think a majority of of rigs are actually private from privately owned companies. Um, I don't know the percent of production. I would imagine a lot of it's the the publicly the large public companies, but um, you know it it's interesting that that you say sort of the smaller privates uh, that that could be could could help prop up and and really push us through a lot of the the energy challenge that we have mainly because of the, the the issues that we've that you've described. but um on the on the other side of the fence talking about natural gas, do you think sort of the same idea? or sort of the same philosophy from investors is on the natural gas side of things with with the expected increase in, you know, in demand and, all, you know, these three major uh, terminals that are being built. And, you know, because there's a lot of export cap- you know capacity coming online and a lot of excitement around natural gas, um, so to speak. So, I mean, do you think there'll be a pivot of, of more money going into that and in infrastructures, you know, the Marcellus, they're a little bit locked right now with takeaway capacity. Um, but, you know, the Hainesville and, and down here on the coast is obviously favorable for for a lot more activity. I mean, real quick, on, uh, what's your thesis on natural gas?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there's still a lot of opportunity in crude oil, but I think natural gas is one of those things
0: where, look,
1: I think crude oil demand is going to grow. But I get why people debate it based on fuel economy gains and electric vehicles. It, it, it is a debate. Again, I come out on the optimistic side, but someone could debate the pessimistic side. With yeah. natural gas, I think that demand... Uh, is much more certain looking out over 10, 20, 30 years, in large part because we know that solar and wind are intermittent. Uh, and we know, therefore, no one's going to want to entirely depend on that. And we also know that while I think we should be doing a lot more nuclear as a, as a world and as a country, we're not on track for that either. And so then natural gas is clearly going to be a very important fuel. But I think it's nail on the head again in terms of a big part of whether you're optimistic or not about U.S. natural gas is going to be confidence in the LNG build-out. And there are a number of terminals, as you've highlighted. And so long as those terminals get built, uh, and so long as I think there are unfortunate energy policies in other parts of the world, places like Europe, where they're going to need our LNG in lieu of, again, perhaps building out nuclear or not being ideological about their own domestic gas, uh, then I think there's a pretty good future for natural gas. What I worry about, though, is I do think there's a pretty clear clear linkage between U.S. natural gas prices being higher when we export more LNG. And that to me is logical and it makes sense uh, and is still overall very good for our country in terms of export revenues and so forth. But if you're a politician, um, it it can be very quick and easy to kind of potentially ban lng exports that's what i worry about politically and i don't view that as a democrat versus republican thing i worry about it as a sitting president who at some point is facing higher energy prices now i think it is still gasoline prices which are obviously crude oil based that are the hot hot button political issue and i don't think like having 10 or 15 dollar temporary u.s natural gas prices ever gets as much attention because it doesn't quite flow through to almost everyone's electricity rates as an example. But my my only concern with U.S. natural gas, LNG build-out is Mm. politicians getting in the way and not recognizing uh, what my opinion is, which is this is a huge opportunity for, you know, American strength to, to, by the way, it should be Canada as well. Canada should have a huge LNG export program. They've got a lot of inexpensive natural gas. I think Canada's got a very challenging federal government situation in terms of Uh, The federal government, I believe, putting restrictions on LNG exports and and pipeline exports for crude oil and so forth. But I would like to see both the U.S. and Canada really ramp these areas up. I think it'd be good for the. Why shouldn't people in Africa, in Ghana, in rural India, in Southeast Asia, why should they not get our cleaner, uh, hopefully methane, near zero methane-free, lower carbon resources? Why do we want those people to have to depend on Russia, Iran, or some of these. Where's the environmental and social justice in making the rest of the world depend on the rest of the world? We should be offering that in the form of environmental, social, and economic justice. In all seriousness.
0: Yeah. No, that's a. Uh, I mean, that you could drop the mic there. I mean, that was <laughs> that's a great way to sum it up. And actually, to add to that point, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll shut her down here. But I was uh, we were out uh, the other weekend, and I made a post about it on LinkedIn. But I I met some folks from Mozambique. And um, they're here, they've been here, they studied here, uh, but they go back quite regularly. And, you know, and they're just so grateful to be here in the US and all the, you know, access to resources, whether it be energy, food, consumer, everything, you know what I mean? And, and uh, so I asked about, you know, energy poverty in that part of the world. And, and it was interesting to find out that they sit on just as much natural gas reserves as we do here in the US, which I found mind blowing. It's like 630 TCF or something like that. And they're just now starting to uh, I think start exporting uh, their LNG. And I just thought it was really neat. And 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 again, the, the very same sort of theme happened where, or discussion happened where it's like, you know, we understand there's potential for solar and there's potential for other, you know, ways to access energy, but for us to, for the world to to try and move away from the fossil fuel resource and, and depend on a lot of these other ones, they felt as though it's like, almost like, like, oh, like it's, it's almost seems like a, like a punishment or we get put at a disadvantage. Is like, why can't we have access to the same sort of uh, you know, the same resources and and access to, to the energy that helped get the world from where it was to where it is today. And so that, and, and again, there was some, I guess, decent argument that that was had on, on LinkedIn, which some of it was, I didn't, I had a hard time even trying to respond to it, but uh, it was, it was just interesting to, it's, it's easy to sit here in the U S in our bubble and talk about these things but when you talk to people who come from other parts of the world and and whether they're wrong or right but they're the ones living breathing and 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 experiencing it it's i think people need to listen to folks like that that truly understand what it's like to be in a position where you can't just go plug in your iphone your ipad your tv your iron your computer you know what i mean like it's 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 very it's very refreshing and and gives you a really broad understanding of really what the world is actually experiencing
1: i mean i I have to tell you justin You know, I am guilty of having not spent enough time really thinking through Africa and what their opportunities are and their pros and cons and opportunities and challenges a lot of time is spent on China and India and Southeast Asia. But Africa is both rich in resource and unfortunately poor in terms of energy demand meaning they have a lot of energy poverty and that makes very little sense. I mean, Asia generally it has some resources but it's generally an importing place that we spend a lot of time focusing on Asian demand and how we're going to meet it yet Africa which has probably the highest amount of people or at least percentage of people in energy poverty, meaning uh, no no access to anything or very limited access, yet they are very rich in resources. And one of the most hypocritical policies that I find just very disturbing is a World Bank policy that essentially doesn't allow financing of coal investments in Africa, but Germany is allowed to build new coal infrastructure. Now, Germany does not depend on World Bank Bank financing. That's a little bit the answer, but how, how can it make sense that... Uh Germany's allowed to address a shortfall on natural gas by adding new coal, and that's fine. I, I, I think they should if if they didn't make better decisions previously, but you're not, you're going to quote, not allow Africa to do this, completely reprehensible. Uh, to, so but let me be optimistic about this. I think we will be having a healthy energy transition. When, when Africa's energy poverty goes to zero and it's met with domestic resources. And so there is a long history that is beyond my knowledge or the scope of this podcast about colonialism in Europe. Um, worse <laughs> things than colonialism, which is uh, people being forcibly removed from their continent and forced to work for free under horrible conditions. Like there's a really challenging legacy of exploitation that, that frankly is ignored. I, I, I'm not you know, I'm not an activist, I'm not a, I'm a Wall Street person, for goodness sakes, but I sit, sit there and say, why didn't I ever care about this? Why, you know, why didn't I ever care about this for 30 years? I cared about whether my company had a project in Algeria or, or Nigeria, but I never really cared about local demand. And why doesn't any of these resources, why isn't it met by local African countries to meet their peop, their, their local needs? And maybe yeah. some of that's challenges with their own governments. Maybe it's a legacy of colonialism. Um, and the slave trade and all these horrible things that have happened to Africa historically, but how do we break that? How do we how do we create a paradigm where there is positive investment flows going in there where we talk about it and think about it, like we do India and before that China and other parts of Southeast Asia as an attractive quote growth market, where in yeah. this case, it does not have to be met necessarily with American or Canadian oil and gas, even though I would support that it can be met by the oil and gas uh, from these local countries and they might need some financing help from us. I don't even know that they need expertise help. They certainly need us all to get out of the way and let them thrive as a country. And they maybe they need some self help in terms of things that need to be done to improve the government situations in some of these countries. And so I, I would just say this as an investor. Africa is one of those places that looks really interesting. And I think it should be on our radar screen. It should not be forgotten. It should be part of the discussion when we talk about how is India going to meet its energy needs? How is China going to meet its energy needs? Africa needs to be absolutely a part of that conversation. And unlike those other areas, they are actually rich in resource. So why can't we, uh, why can't they, why can't we, with their help, figure it out?
0: Yeah, no, again, it's it's clearly a complex Topic, um, and I think you know one of the things too that that they mentioned after talking with them was the challenges that they face uh, politically. So again, that that's a whole other topic in itself. But again, very great points. Arjun, this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, you know, I, I, I thank you for your time. Hopefully the listeners learned something. Um, and as I mentioned, connect with Arjun uh, in, in, you know, whether it be LinkedIn uh, or Twitter and then his Substack. Arjun, is there anywhere else that you uh, you play? I mean, you're obviously your are part host now with the uh, COB Tuesday is the name of it, I think that's
1: right so it's all, everything is also on the veriton website veriton.com and they Perfect. you know they've done a great podcast called close the business tuesday c o b t i think it's been running for 3 years now they've got a range of guests i think their their the mantra is truth and energy so veritas right that classically means i think truth uh veritin is a play on that truth and energy and it is meant to be inclusive it is meant to represent a range of viewpoints it's not left or right i think none of us no, we'll accuse Veriton of being hardcore progressives. That's for sure, but it's also not meant to be right wing either. Yeah. But how do you engage in dialogue and discussion? How do you have pragmatic solutions? So it's all there in Veriton. The COBT and Super Spiked are for free. We 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 believe you know it's a for profit company. We would love to make fees from companies that support us for sure, but there is a mission of sort of um our give back would be we do believe in energy education so why is started to super yeah. spike so that's free on substack linkedin twitter there's a youtube channel but that also shows up on substack and there's Veriton. and um again i appreciate everyone's engagement just it's been great being here with you i i listen to i think just about every one of your podcasts i love your sort of positive energy of how you bring to the bring things to table. I've loved your recent discussions, both with your wife, but also some of the folks you've talked about mental health issues. And so it is just such an honor and a pleasure to be here. And I know you work in the oil field, so I am always, always appreciative of everyone's contribution to helping me live uh, a nice lifestyle with having energy, which uh, which I thank you for.
0: Yeah, well, well, again, the uh, the respect goes both ways. And it's been an absolute pleasure for the listeners out there. Uh, really appreciate the support. If you could review, subscribe, um, and just share this with someone who who may be interested in learning. Uh, again, the thought leadership coming from Arjun is is, is next to none. And I uh, appreciate everyone's time. And with that, always remember, everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody thanks again for listening to another episode of wicked energy with jg and look if you or your organization wants to start a podcast please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast once you get through it let me know if you have any questions or getting started thanks and we'll see you next week peace